0: We thought the first coronavirus death in the U.S. came the last day in February in Washington state. Not true. Now we know COVID-19 killed someone in the Bay Area more than three weeks earlier.
1: The fatality on February 6th was a 57-year-old woman.
2: That is a very significant uh, finding. The things we put into place in late January, like the travel ban, the virus was already here by then and probably circulating quite widely.
0: Meanwhile, the president claims states are safely coming back, but one model used by the White House now says 12 states, including Georgia, should wait the longest, at least another six weeks, before relaxing social distancing. Georgia's governor forced to defend, even on Fox, what he calls a measured step to open gyms, hair salons and the like this Friday.
3: The fitness owners, I have great confidence in them spreading people out when they're doing a workout. It's not saying they've got to screen them. These are best practices. They could do
0: temperature screening. While others preach caution.
4: And it will look more like a turning of a dial than the flip of a switch. We will not be able to lift many of the restrictions by May 4th.
0: In New York, that Navy hospital ship no longer taking patients' pressure on beds easing in the city, but the body count continues to mount. Some dead will now be stored in freezer trucks in Brooklyn, waiting for the backlog at cemeteries and crematoriums to clear.
3: I'm talking to many local officials. They feel political pressure to open. I get the pressure, but we can't make a bad decision. Frankly, this is no time... To act stupidly.
0: In Texas, daylight emerging between the Republican governor, who is expected to soon announce business openings, and the Democratic mayor of the state's biggest city.
5: When it comes to allowing some elective surgeries, which will start today, I agree with it. But if you go much further than that, if you start opening up everything, like what is taking place in Georgia, then I think you run into a serious problem of creating a resurgence of this virus.
0: A pork processing plant in Iowa just finally closed after pressure from local Democratic officials and resistance from the Republican governor.
3: I understand the impact that this has on our national food chain, but in order to be able to stop the spread, this was the best course of action.
0: Now, all 2,800 workers in that plant will now be offered COVID-19 testing. Can't help but think that Maybe the horse is bolted. But moving forward, data is obviously the key to all of this. And we just heard from the governor in New York, they are now launching basically an army of contact tracers who will fan out over the tri-state area as we begin to reopen. If there's a case... They will trace contacts and those people will be isolated if necessary. And former mayor Mike Bloomberg is kicking in some expertise and also more than 10 million dollars to help with that initiative. Jake. All right, Nick.
6: Thank you so much. Joining me now, chief CNN medical correspondent, uh, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Uh, a key coronavirus model, often touted by the White House, the one from the University of Washington, says many states, states will need to wait longer to reopen. The model predicts that June 19th is going to be the date that it's safe for Georgia to reopen. Uh, the governor is, of course, allowing some businesses to reopen there in 48 hours, long before June. What, what do you make of this situation?
2: I, well, I, th- I think the governor is, is falling into a, a trap here, Jake. I don't think he's recognized uh, that these measures that have gone in place, these, these uh, social distancing, physical distancing measures, have had an impact. Uh, you know, he's thinking, you know, things look okay here. Uh, the, first of all, they don't look okay. I mean, the data is pretty clear on this and the numbers don't lie. I think it was very interesting to hear how Ambassador Burke sort of phrased it yesterday. She basically said, hey, look, we put out guidelines. We made it as easy to use as possible. There are still outbreaks happening. The numbers are going in the wrong direction. So I don't know how you could possibly do this, but maybe they'll get creative, was essentially how she put it. I don't know how you get creative uh, in in a situation with some of these uh, businesses that would open. Um, I I also, you know, the, the other concern, Jake, is this, and we've talked about this, but between the time someone might get exposed after these reopenings occur, and people will get exposed, it can be a, you know, 14 days, right, the incubation period before they start to have symptoms, several days after that before they need to go to the hospital if they do, And several days after that before people unfortunately might die so my my point is that people may look at georgia and say two weeks later hey everything still looks okay and then three weeks later all of a sudden things start to uh, the numbers start to go up Uh, i hope that people don't follow that lead if georgia in fact does reopen because there is a latency here and um, you know people just got to remember how this virus behaves
6: So, uh, obviously, the other big news today is that we now know that the first deaths from coronavirus uh, were long before the one that we thought was the first one, uh, early February, in California, not in Washington state. What's the significance of this?
2: Yeah, you know, as uh, Ashish Jha was just talking about, uh, it is significant, I think, very significant. Uh, but not surprising. It, it's significant because, you know, if you look at the, the various benchmarks that we've been talking about that have, have made this of increasing concern, first of all, that it was a novel coronavirus, right? We, we knew that. It made this jump from animals to humans. And then it started transmitting, we know, from humans to humans. And then we know that human-to-human transmission was happening within the community. And after that, we learned that it could happen asymptomatically. But what, what this sort of suggests, Jake, someone died of this on February 6th in California, uh, no known travel to China. That means it was already spreading in the community. And if you do the math backwards again, so the person died on February 6th, when were they likely to have been exposed? Probably beginning of January, three to four weeks earlier. So we probably had community spread of this virus in this country at the beginning of the year, uh, January 6th. So, uh, I mean, maybe even earlier than that. Who, who knows the exact date? But the point is that it's been around for a lot longer. I think people have suspected that for some time. I don't think we thought that the first patient that we diagnosed was definitively the first patient diagnosed, uh, the first patient here. But this is quite a bit earlier, I think, than even public health officials anticipated. So it was spreading within the community. And early January, spreading uh, as a very contagious disease, spreading asymptomatically. You could have a lot of people out there who've, who've likely been exposed to this.
6: And we don't know if the 57-year-old woman who was the first patient that we know of who died of this in the U.S., we don't know if she had preexisting conditions, but she is A, under 60, or was under 60, and B, a woman, not a man, and we know that it, it, it affects men worse. California is now the first state to recommend that asymptomatic patients in high-risk situations be tested, um, do you think that that should theoretically be the way it is for every state in the nation?
2: Yeah, I, I think that that's, that's what's gonna have to happen. And you know, if you wanna start putting some numbers on it to make it more tangible for people, out of every uh, uh, 10 tests that are performed, only one should come back positive, meaning that you're, you're, you're basically surveilling enough people that you're starting to get a real sense of, of where the virus is. But even more specifically, Jake, when, when you start going back to work, when I start going back to work, going back into a public building where there's people around, we may need to be tested, not only you know before we go back to work, but then again on a regular basis of some sort to make sure that in fact, we are not harboring the virus in our bodies. Obviously, if we have symptoms, we should not go to work. But let's say we're totally asymptomatic, we should still need to be tested uh, on some regular basis to make sure we don't have the virus and can spread it to other people. The metaphor that I've been using uh, with some of my medical colleagues is sort of like uh, how diabetics test their blood glucose. This isn't a blood test that we would be talking about for the virus, but sort of, sort of thinking, starting to think of it that way. You can do this more regularly. We won't need to do this in perpetuity. A vaccine should change that ultimately. But for a time being, yeah, testing has to be available. We've got to have some confidence that I'm not carrying the virus right now. I'm going to go out. I might not be able to physically distance myself. I'll wear my mask. I'll do all the right things. But what I'd really like to know, do I have the virus right now? I can't, mm-hmm. you know, I can't sufficiently answer that question for myself, and a lot of people can't. That's where we need to be, Jake.
6: And the CDC director, Dr. Redfield, yesterday in an interview with The Washington Post, he warned of a horrific possible combination this winter uh, when the coronavirus pandemic, perhaps even another wave of it, uh, coincides with the seasonal flu overwhelming the health care system. Is there any way to avoid that?
2: Well, you know, one way to, to slow to mitigate it, I guess, a word that we now use a lot is for people to get their flu shot. I mean, I, I don't mean to sound trite here, but you know, fewer than half the adults in this country get their flu shot every year. I mean, flu is a significant concern. I mean, we've said that from the start. A couple of years ago, 60,000 people died of the flu in this country. So um, yeah, getting a flu shot will certainly help, but also recognizing that all the, all the things that we've been talking about for the last three months, making sure hospitals have surge capacity, making sure that healthcare workers have enough personal protective equipment making sure we can do testing and contact tracing, as we've talked about, those those issues are not going away. We may get a little bit of a, a lull as the weather warms. There's some, some predictions that could happen. But this second wave, especially if it coincides with flu season, uh, we're going to need all those same things again and, and and more of them. So I think that's what Dr. Redfield really meant. The virus is the constant here. The virus is a, a contagious virus. Right. It obviously can be a lethal virus for some people. That's not changed. But what changes is the circumstances and the, and, the, and the sort of stacking on top of flu.
6: Right. FDA Commissioner Dr. Stephen Hahn said this morning that testing, which I believe is, is at about a rate of 150,000 to 200,000 people a day, he predicted that it could double by this week. Take a listen.
7: That could be done this week um, if the appropriate identification occurs at the state level um, and then the supplies are there for them. And so this is every day working with the states, unlocking that capacity, getting the supplies where they're needed and actually informing the state public health
6: officials about what alternative supplies are available. Is that really possible? Could testing realistically double this week?
2: I, I, you know, there, there were two ifs that he put in there, if you listened. One was if the states can identify and if the supplies are there. I think that the capacity, and, I, you know, I think people define this maybe in different ways, but there are labs now. There's public health labs, there's these big commercial labs like Quest, there's uh, university labs. I think, you know, the lab capacity uh, has, has, you know, focused their attention on, on this coronavirus. So I think the capacity has certainly increased. But still, you know, the supplies, everything from the swabs to the reagents to the medium uh... that you transport the swab and that they've been lacking in certain places and if you don't have even one of those things in the supply chain it's tough to get a test done so if if those supplies are there uh... i think you could get to that number i have no doubt jake that we're capable of this in the united states not only getting to that number but getting to a million tests a day which is probably where we need to be i think we can do it i think we just have to at this point we have to this has to be priority number one i think
6: And there needs to be leadership, not just in the states, but on the federal level, uh, to help, especially with the supply chain issues. Sanjay, thanks so much. Uh, Be sure to tune in for a CNN Global Town Hall hosted by Sanjay and Anderson Cooper tomorrow night. Their guest will be Grammy Award-winning artist Alicia Keys, who will debut her new song honoring healthcare workers. That's tomorrow at 8 p.m. Eastern, right here on CNN. Coming up next, a return to the epicenter. CNN is live on the ground in Wuhan, China. What life is like now? in the place where coronavirus was born. Plus, some states in the U.S. also now trying to get back to a new normal of sorts. We'll talk to an expert about the measures you may experience as businesses begin to try to reopen. Stay with us. In our Worldly Today, a CNN exclusive in the United States, a return to the place where this all started, Wuhan, China, the first epicenter of this horrific pandemic. CNN's David Culver was in Wuhan in late January as Chinese authorities started to lock down the entire city to try to control the outbreak. He got out just hours before. Now he's back inside to see what life looks like now that the Chinese government are lifting some restrictions.
7: CNN back at the original epicenter of the novel coronavirus outbreak, Wuhan, China, and it's more than 11 million residents navigating this post-lockdown uncertainty. Among them, American hey, Christopher Suzanne. Yeah, let's switch out mask. I know. If, yeah, it's your preference switch here. my mask the- I'll do this. He suggested we upgrade our protective equipment before going for a stroll. It's a city he knows well. So this place is, you know, I was married here, I had a baby here, I've been here for the past 10 years. This is home. Yeah, this is home. Christopher's home is slowly emerging from a brutal 76-day lockdown. He returned to Wuhan in the midst of it.
0: I'm real happy to see, like, people at least, uh, you know, keeping their distance,
7: getting around, going, going about their day. But just two weeks after the reopening, and some here are closing the gap on social distancing. Many stores and restaurants keeping people from coming inside, but that's not stopping crowds like this one from standing shoulder to shoulder, waiting outside for their orders. In places like our hotel, there are noticeably stricter measures. Staff spraying us down each time we walk in and checking our temperatures. Inside, even the elevators telling you where to stand and offering you a tissue to touch the buttons. But will it last? Like We are afraid that there is going to be the second wave. I think everybody here knows. Do uh, you think it's coming? Absolutely. Yet there is growing skepticism over where the first wave actually originated. So this is where Chinese health officials believe the source of the novel coronavirus is. This is the Huanan seafood market. Of course, they believe other things may have been sold here, hence the transmission from animals to humans of this virus. But you can see it's all closed off still. This has now been since January 1 that they shut it down. However, I want to take you now to the lab where U.S. intelligence is looking into the possible origins of this virus having come from there. We drove to the lab inside China's Center for Disease Control, just down the street from the market. This is one of the labs within Wuhan, not too far from the market either. It's an origin theory Chinese officials quickly dismiss. They also push back at claims that their reported number of cases and deaths is far less than reality even as numbers have repeatedly been revised upward to account for previous undercounts. Just last week, another 50 percent was added to the Wuhan death toll alone. You know, whether or not they want to share that information with, with the public you know, doesn't really concern me. I'm really more concerned about my family and, and what we can do. And others, like this convenience shop owner, more worried about resurrecting their businesses. I'm a bit worried. I don't know when we will resume completely. As China claims to get the virus under better control in places like Wuhan, there's now greater concern of those coming in from elsewhere. From our arrival into the city to this interview out in the street, we were questioned repeatedly. I'm from from U.S., but I live in Beijing. A group of plain-clothed and uniformed police growing increasingly uneasy with our being there, a reflection of both their fear of imported cases and a mounting distrust of foreign media. Police, yeah. uh, well, we'll walk in the car. Yeah. We'll go.
8: out.
6: And David, we saw you in that report getting sprayed down just to get into your hotel. You left Wuhan as the lockdown order was coming down in January. Just how different is life there now from when you left it?
7: I would say the mindset has completely changed, really Jake. I mean, I go back to where we were 3 months ago to this day, and that was the day before the lockdown. And we were going and talking to folks in, in nearby markets because the original seafood market had already shut down. And many of them were not wearing masks. Many of them said that they believed that the government had it under control and that things would pass. Of course, we know that just a few hours after we were talking to them, that unprecedented lockdown took place. And I, you would look at it as though kind of different layers of complacency, if you will. And I see that and in, in how people are, are dressing now two weeks after the reopening. You have some people who, of course, are still wearing masks because it's now mandatory and it's the law. But some go head to toe in that protective garment and and others are are shoulder to shoulder outside of restaurants, as you saw there in that piece, comfortable to kind of resume life.
6: Hmm. David Culver, thank you so much. Appreciate it. There's there's breaking news just in from The New York Times, a top doctor removed from his job with the U.S. government. Why he believes he was removed. That's next. Breaking news. The doctor who was leading the Trump administration's vaccine program up until yesterday is now saying he thinks he was removed from his position at the Department of Health and Human Services because he was calling for rigorous vetting of hydroxychloroquine, the drug President Trump repeatedly pushed as a coronavirus treatment. Until recently, when it became clearer that medical experts were quite skeptical of the drug's effectiveness. the story was first reported by the New York Times. Let's go now to the White House, where we find CNN's Caitlin Collins. And Caitlin, uh, what else is Dr. Rick Bright saying in this scathing statement?
1: Yeah, Jake, this is really something, because yesterday we found out that he was abruptly leaving this position. He was in charge of basically the agency that's in charge of leading the production and the purchases of vaccines. So a really important agency at a time like this, it's not well known, but it is well funded and it's really powerful. And he had been there since 2016. So it raised a lot of eyebrows when all of a sudden yesterday it was announced that he was no longer going to be leading it, that his deputy was actually going to be taking over in an acting position. And instead they said in this release that we got from the Health and uh, Human Services Department that he was going to be moving to the National Institutes of Health. He was going to be working on this public private partnership. They tried to downplay his departure, Jake, but now we are getting this statement from his attorneys where he is saying that he believes this was retaliation because he was not uh, essentially giving in to exactly what the administration was thinking on responses to the coronavirus. He says, I believe this transfer was in response to my insistence that the government invest the billions of dollars allocated by Congress into safe and scientifically vetted solutions and not in drugs, vaccines and other technologies that lack scientific merit. Jake, he says, unfortunately, his push for this resulted in clashes with the HHS political leadership. That seems to be the Health and Human Services Secretary, Alex Azar, who, of course, has played a leading role in this. And he says, including my criticism for the proactive efforts to invest early into vaccines and supplies, critical to saving American lives. He says he also resisted efforts to fund potentially dangerous drugs that were promoted by those with political connections. That's a really loaded sentence there. But Jake, I also want to point out a few other things he says in this this very lengthy statement, where he basically says that some of the drugs that they were pushing had potentially serious risk associated with them, including increased mortality observed in some recent studies in patients who had coronavirus. He says he was sidelined in the middle of a pandemic and placing politics and cronyism ahead of science puts lives at risk and stunts national efforts to safely and effectively address this public health crisis. Here's what's really newsworthy. He says at the end he's going to ask that the Inspector General of the Department of Health and Human Services investigate the manner in which this administration has politicized the work of BARDA, the agency he was leading, and then in his attorney's statement, they say at the end that they are going to ask the Office of the Special Counsel to look into his termination, seek a stay on it, and they are trying to get him to stay in his position as the director of this agency. That's what his attorneys are saying here at the end. So basically what he is saying, he's not resigning from the administration overall. He's trying to actually keep his job as the director of this agency. And Jake, there are going to be a lot of questions about this. If he is saying that the administration was pushing back on what he was trying to do as far as the purchase and the production of vaccines and treatments for coronavirus, and now he says he was pushed out of this job, clearly against his will based on this statement that he just put out.
6: And the way he describes it in his statement, Caitlin, it sounds as though... He really was motivated, at least in his own words, uh, by trying to protect Americans from what is an unproven drug. Uh, He says, I quote, rightly resisted efforts to provide an unproven drug on demand to the American public. I insisted that these drugs be provided only to hospitalized patients with confirmed cases while under the supervision of a physician. This is quite believable because we heard President Trump, who we should note, has a long record of not believing in science and you know, official medicine when it comes to any number of, uh, of issues ranging from vaccines to, to other things, uh, climate change, for example. But beyond that, President Trump has been pushing this drug. Here is somebody saying, I don't trust this drug. We can't just say the American people should take it. And he's saying that because he resisted that, he was pushed out basically of his job trying to protect Americans.
1: Yeah. And just to give people insight, and because this is a really little known agency. A lot of people don't know exactly that much about it. And it doesn't generate a lot of news, typically, of course, now that we're in the middle of a pandemic, it does. And if you're the director of barter, you have a lot of power, basically, to decide what vaccines you're pursuing. You basically pay for those, pay for those studies. And then that's how that moves forward. So it's a really incredibly powerful position. It's got a lot of money. And so that's why it is so crucial to know who the director of it is at a time like, this. And that's why we were so surprised yesterday when he was pushed out of this job. And it's not like they had someone else come in and replace him. It's just his deputy who is replacing him on an acting basis. And the question was, is someone else going to come in? So he's basically in charge of making sure that these treatments are going to be safe and viable and effective. And so he's basically seems to be implying that people were trying to get him to invest in these other efforts that he did not think were worth their time. So, of course, there are going to be a lot of questions about this. We've already reached out to HHS. They did not immediately respond with any kind of statement on his departure. But, Jake, it's also really notable that he's still working in the administration, and now he's put out this loaded statement, uh, basically saying that he was pressured in his job to come up with things he did not think were scientifically ready.
6: The idea of politics and the president's personal ego uh, being placed above science reminds me of President Trump with the hurricane. But you can't sharpie a drug into acceptability and, and scientific. Uh, acceptance to the american people it doesn't work that way caitlin uh, collins thank you so much i know you're going to be reporting much more of this later on some states around the country are now making moves now to reopen some businesses uh let's talk about the safety for customers and for workers we're joined now by david michaels he's an epidemiologist at george washington university and david was also the longest serving head of the federal occupational safety and health administration which you probably know better as osha he did that under president obama David, OSHA is charged with protecting worker safety. And essential workers have been showing up to work every day since the coronavirus outbreak started. I'm not talking just about doctors, nurses, and healthcare workers, but also grocery store employees, food distributors. Is OSHA doing its job to make sure that they are safe?
8: Um, That's right, Jake. Thanks for asking me to be on the show. There are workers across the country, not just in hospitals, farms, meatpacking plants, grocery stores, who are terrified. And uh, there is no federal agency telling them they must protect workers. That's OSHA's job. But President Trump and Secretary of Labor Eugene Scalia have said, you know, OSHA is not going to play any major role in this. And OSHA is frankly missing in action.
6: In Georgia, uh, which is taking steps to reopen now. Uh, The Board of Cosmetology and Barbers uh, issued guidance for a safe reopening uh, of those kinds of of stores. It includes uh, temperature checks for every employee, every client, screening questions for clients, limits on the number of people that can be in the shops. Clients are being asked to wait in their cars instead of in the shop. Employees are suggested to shower before a shift, keep their clothes in the shop each day. Not to mention, of course, masks for everyone. Salons are being asked to consider divider shields between chairs. It sounds like a lot of steps being taken to protect people. Is it enough?
8: Well, look, it certainly could be making things safer, but we don't know enough about this virus, and we know that if you get within, you know, a few feet of someone who's coughing, who's got the disease, you're getting exposed, and many of those exposed people get sick. What we need are very clear requirements, and, you know, the... Everything we've seen coming out of governors, coming out of the CDC, they're recommendations. There's no enforcement behind them. The only agency that has the authority to require employers to follow the rules is OSHA. And OSHA is not in the picture. It's been handcuffed.
6: Are all businesses going to be in a position to make their own rules? Or is OSHA going to, should OSHA be setting rules for each individual kind of business?
8: Well, each individual kind of business is going to have to follow different rules. But what OSHA needs to do, and I've been advocating for this for for months, if I were still running OSHA, I would have done this months ago, is issue an emergency standard saying every employer which has workers who work with other workers or next to the public has to follow OSHA recommendations and CDC recommendations. Different employers are going to have to do it differently but every one of them has to follow those rules or be subject to a penalty. Without that, it's the Wild West.
6: Of course, the the other point of view is that businesses that are allowed to open don't wanna be sued for something that is going on that is a international tragedy and not necessarily the fault of an individual business. Um, How do you respond to those concerns?
8: Well, you know, unfortunately, work employers cannot be sued by their employees. Workers can't sue their employer when they get sick. Um, they have to go into the exclusive remedy of the workers' compensation system, which is a terrible system. There's been a race to the bottom, and benefits are terrible. So, because employers don't face that liability, you have employers like Smithfield Farms. You know, Smithfield had hundreds of workers working elbow to elbow, shoulder to shoulder on pork processing lines. And hundreds of them have gotten sick. Uh, if they were facing liability, they might have done a better job, but they knew they didn't face liability and they knew that OSHA is not going to come in and do anything. And we have disaster after disaster across the country because of this.
6: David Michaels, thank you so much. We appreciate your time today. And we should also note that CNN has invited Georgia Governor Brian Kemp to speak with us on air. He has declined every one of those offers. Coming up, beaches in South Carolina also now back open, even as the influential model often cited by the White House warns that that state should consider its measures until June. We're going to talk to the mayor of Charleston. That's next. Some businesses in South Carolina are allowed to open their doors this week. Clothing, furniture, sporting goods stores, even flea markets have been given the green light by the governor. But under new guidelines businesses are only allowed to be at 20 percent capacity. Customers have to stay six feet apart in accordance with social and physical distancing guidelines. Charleston's mayor, John Tecklenburg, joins us now to discuss. Uh, Mr. Mayor, thanks for joining us. Did Governor McMaster consult you before making this announcement on the partial reopening?
3: Well, Jake, I was in touch with his office last weekend before the announcement on Monday, and it does Uh, add some formerly non-essential businesses uh, to the list of businesses that were open before, like grocery stores, pharmacies, and essential businesses, and puts in place those uh, uh, protocols that you just mentioned. And the City of Charleston tonight, our City Council will be considering even another measure, another emergency ordinance which will further decrease the risk of exposure to COVID-19 and retail establishments. So we are gonna augment the governor's order and make it clear that safety is number one in the operation and reopening of any business here in Charleston.
6: So as you know better than I, uh, health officials are saying that the way out of this crisis, the way out of this pandemic requires widespread testing so that experts in society can isolate uh, and, and quarantine people who are carriers. Now, I just checked uh, a few minutes ago, the South Carolina Department of Health and Environmental Control website. They say um, that your state has conducted 42,441 tests in your state. Your state is 5.1 million people. So that's less than 1% of the people of South Carolina who have been tested. So the White House guidelines say a core state responsibility for reopening is to have safe and efficient screening and testing. You're at less than 1%. Is your state really ready for this?
3: Well, uh, we are ramping up for more testing and locally the city has been working with another state institution, the the Medical University of South Carolina. We're really blessed to have this teaching hospital here. They're now up to 900 tests a day capacity and have ordered hundreds of thousands of the uh, Anybody testing that we really need to safely reopen our economy and reopen our city. So we're working in addition with DHEC, with MUSC, to, to bring more testing on online. And admittedly, we're, 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 we're ramping up. Yes, sir. A key,
6: a key tracking model from the University of Washington, uh, often cited by the White House, says that South Carolina should not reopen or cannot safely reopen until at least June 5th. Does that concern you? The fact that the people who have been modeling this say that, suggests that this is premature?
3: Well, Jake, I'm concerned about the level of testing. I'm concerned about contact tracing. We all, not just in Charleston and South Carolina, but the whole country need to do a better job at that. But at, at, the, at the same time, uh, when you look at South Carolina, for example, it's it's a measured approach. And just today, the governor announced that uh, we would continue to have schools closed through the end of the school year, which normally would have been about that same time frame you you mentioned. So so when he orders that some retail stores uh, are are able to now do business again under certain safe conditions, it's not like Katie opened the door the barn door, and and everything's flying out. Uh, It's a a measured approach, and we have to use some common sense, and everybody's got to work together to make this as safe as possible. Uh, And we've done that in Charleston. We were the first city in the state to have a stay-at-home ordinance, and our numbers reflect that, that our number of cases and the percentage of of, uh, increase has been uh, quite reasonable.
6: I heard your uh, Senator Lindsey Graham express concerns uh, about your neighbor, Georgia, going too quickly. Do you share those concerns that Governor Kemp is is ordering Katie, open the door, or Katie, but whatever, whatever colorful colloquialism you just mentioned that the door is
3: open. Katie, don't there. bar the door. I think it is. Um, absolutely. Right. I agree with that. And, and so they're opening up even contact businesses, which Governor McMaster has not done in South Carolina. Uh, you know, parlors and salons and and barbershops and things like that, where people have personal contact with each other. Um, I agree with Senator Lindsey uh, Graham that Georgia has really gone too far. And it shows that South Carolina really has a more measured, practical approach.
6: All right, Mayor John Tecklenburg of Charleston, South Carolina. Thanks and God bless and God bless the people of your town. We appreciate your time.
3: Come visit us sometime soon.
6: All right. Tomorrow, the House will take up the $484 billion emergency relief package passed by the U.S. Senate. The bulk of that money will go to small business loans through the Paycheck Protection Program. The rest will go to hospitals, health care providers, and to expand coronavirus testing. But before this bill can get to the president's desk, there is some concern that the $484 billion is not enough. Let's bring in CNN business anchor Julia Chatterley. Uh, Julia, great to see, as always. This bill has $310 billion just for small business loans. How quickly do you think this new batch of money will run out?
5: I was told it could be gone, Jake, in as little as three days. That was by the CEO of Lendio, the online lending marketplace. His view is there's lots of pent-up demand. It will be gone very quickly just based on the sheer number of small businesses that didn't get access in round one. But there's a bigger issue. According to LendingTree today, just five percent of small businesses that did get loans have actually got their hands on the cash. That's a huge problem, too.
6: Breaking news now from two uh, Ivy League schools, both Harvard and Princeton, have announced that they will not take funds that have been allocated to them in the last stimulus bill. This comes after President Trump seemed to accuse Harvard of applying for a loan intended for small businesses. Take a listen.
0: When I saw Harvard, they have a,
4: one of the largest endowments anywhere in the, the country, maybe in the world, I guess. And uh, they're going to pay back that money. Harvard
6: initially said that 100% of the allocated funds were going to students directly impacted by COVID-19. Um, but this is a major reversal after the Secretary of Education today urged wealthy institutions to reject these funds. What, what's your take on all this?
5: It's being called the Shake Shack Principle you can get your hands on the cash, but should you take the cash? And that is the big question, particularly when, like some of these names, you are the richest colleges in the world. Harvard, in the last hour, just the latest to come out and say, we are not going to access this cash that was allocated to them by Congress. They didn't ask for, and this is really key. Okay, they have lots of money, and this is really important, but Remember, Congress perhaps could have got around this by banning these rich colleges in the first place. They didn't, probably down to speed, quite frankly. But, Jake, in the end, they said, look, this is a a problem for us. It's an existential crisis for other colleges. And that's the key.
6: All right, Julia Chatterley, thanks so much. On this Earth Day, many are pointing to the positive impact that these lockdowns have had on the environment, even though, of course, what's going on is horrific. And we'll take a look at why it's really not all that simple. That's next. In our Earth Matters series, maybe you've noticed animals outside your window, maybe in your backyard that you've never seen before. With much of the world at essentially something of a standstill, it's not just the wildlife or rats or raccoons roaming free. Some major U.S. cities are seeing pollutant levels down by 30%. CNN's Bill Weir takes a look now at the world's new normal on this Earth Day.
4: On the golden anniversary of Earth Day, it's as if Mother Nature has sent us all to our rooms to think about what we've done and to give us a glimpse of life without us. The penguins of Cape Town had the streets to themselves while wild pigs use sidewalks in Corsica. Kashmiri goats are helping themselves to the shrubbery in Wales And the sea turtle hatch in Thailand is reportedly setting modern records. A normally shy puma ran a stoplight in Santiago. With no visitors to Kruger National Park, a pride of South African lions can snooze in the road. And with no wall of cars to navigate, Yosemite Park rangers are seeing more bears than ever.
5: For the most part, I think they're having a party.
4: And while they aren't unheard of in New York City, these days it's hard not to be shaken by vultures, Circling over the Navy's floating hospital, the Comfort. Man, it'll be a great day when the only big naval ship docked in New York City is a museum. When the Comfort finally sets sail, surely those vultures will fly away and we can finally come out of our homes. Surely all those wild critters will go back to what's left of theirs. But what about the effects that are harder to see? What is this pause in the Industrial Revolution doing to the chemistry of our sky? Locals in northern India say they can see the Himalayas for the first time in decades. And before and after satellite imagery shows how nitrogen dioxide pollution over North America's big cities is down by as much as 30 percent. But the blanket of heat trapping gases around our planet is still thicker than ever. And there seems to be this perception that maybe the virus has helped humanity buy some time when it comes to global warming. What's, what's wrong with that assumption? Um, we'd have to keep doing this even more and do it for the next 30 years to really mm-hmm. begin to bend the curve on the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. It's kind of like having a really huge bathtub uh, in the sky filled with pollution and we have the faucet pouring, pouring, pouring more in and all we've done is kind of turn down the faucet a little bit but it's still filling up. Thanks to the current oil crash, when the lockdown is lifted, we'll see the lowest gas prices in generations. And with Donald Trump's Environmental Protection Agency gutting dozens of regulations, experts say a spike in pollution seems inevitable. Both the EPA and Earth Day were born when the air and water got too foul for everyday Americans to ignore. 50 years later, science is warning that the storms, floods, and fires of the climate crisis are growing too frequent and too severe to ignore. Saving what's left will take everyday folk everywhere, deciding that their planet deserves more than one minor holiday, like a dead president, deciding that to save life as we know it, every day should be Earth Day. Bill Weir, CNN, New York.
6: And be sure to tune in to CNN this Saturday for a special report as Bill Weir goes on the road to, on the road to see how America is being transformed the road to change America's climate crisis Saturday at 10 p.m. Eastern. The White House Coronavirus Task Force briefing starts in just minutes. Get ready for Dr. Bright to be attacked. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like.